0: The traditional world order is going to be disrupted completely during the next five to 10 years.
1: I'm thrilled to welcome Kathy Wood to the Titans of Industry podcast. She's a woman who needs little introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and give her one anyway. After a multi-decade career on Wall Street, she founded ARK Invest in 2014. Eight years later, ARC manages eight funds totaling tens of billions of dollars in AUM and is arguably one of the most famous investment firms in the country right now. now. I've been following Kathy's work alongside millions of others for a long time. In the past few years, Kathy and I have gotten the chance to know each other a little bit. and I'm excited to have the opportunity to chat on Titans of Industry today. In the midst of a pretty hectic time in the markets, we know our clients are excited to hear how you're thinking about the world, Kathy. So thanks for, much for joining us. Excited to have you.
0: I'm thrilled to be here, as always. Thank you, Clay.
1: So maybe a good place to start, Kathy, is given what's going on in the markets. We have a lot to talk about, obviously. I wanted to start with a few questions more personally about you and ARC, just to familiarize yourself with the tech community a little bit. So maybe to start, what was the aha moment for you, Kathy, when you knew you wanted to be a professional investor?
0: Oh, okay. So I was in college. Uh, and one of my professors introduced me to a company on the West Coast. I was at USC, University of Southern California, uh, and in, he introduced me to Capital Group. That professor was Art Laffer. He's he's pretty well known if you're in the economics world, Laffer Curve and so forth. Uh, he introduced me to Capital Group because they were looking for a person who would kind of do the grunt work for the economist they were going to hire. And uh, so I started at the firm and they allowed me to attend meetings. The first meeting that I attended was all about, now this was Hong Kong, uh, I mean, this was 1977. I was in college, right? And the first meeting um, I'm I'm allowed to attend is about Hong Kong 1997 and I said, wow, the changeover from Britain to China. I want to be in this business. I, they are paying me to learn. The world is my oyster, uh, you know, and, and I've been fired up ever since.
1: It's incredible. You had a, a history you know, past in the traditional fund world, Kathy, and then you decided to make the move to found ARK Invest. And I would describe ARK Invest as, in many ways, trying to democratize access to professional money management really focusing on the disruptive innovation space. What was the catalyst for leaving that traditional world, having gone that traditional path to founding and launching ARK Invest?
0: Uh, well, I, I founded Arc for two reasons. Um, to focus exclusively on disruptive innovation, uh, because what I saw happening in the traditional asset management world was a shift towards passive Or benchmark sensitive strategies which are all backwards looking. You know, the the companies that have high positions in the benchmarks are there because of past success. And if we're right, uh, and the traditional world order is going to be disrupted completely during the next five to 10 years, that is not the right way to invest. And yet, uh, most management teams couldn't believe there was a portfolio manager who did not want to have anything to do with the indexes. Most portfolio managers kind of mirror them or hug them or other ways. So that was one reason. And then the second reason I I knew I had to start my own firm was to add new dimensions to research. Uh, So in the traditional asset management world, compliance officers will not let portfolio managers and analysts say very much, if anything, about their work on social media. And uh, I knew the rules were changing. The SEC was drawing up guidelines for social media, social marketing, and now social distribution. And, uh, And I knew that this was the right thing to do, to give away our research, to share it, because of what I told you before. There's so much inefficiency in the traditional markets when it comes to research and investing. They're not doing enough research on truly disruptive innovation. And and I knew that our stocks were disadvantaged because of it. So give it away and uh, basically develop relationships with people who are also passionate about innovation. And it's a win-win.
1: It makes a ton of sense in hindsight, and you mentioned, you know, the ability to produce quality research, I think it's part and parcel of hiring a great team. So before we jump into markets, Kathy, I want to discuss building high-performing teams. You know, I've had the privilege of having worked in the financial services world before and private equity and long short equity, having been through that interview process. I'm fascinated and curious to know, what does an interview look like with Kathy Wood?
0: Well, first of all, it doesn't take place before something else happens. Uh, I think the most important thing we have here at ARC are are not only incredibly talented people, but a, a culture that, um, it, sure, we're all challenging each other, but a culture of respect and uh, trust. And so the first interviews do not take place with me. Uh, when we're hiring for analysts, for example, uh, we will have our analysts interview them first. And that cultural fit is top of mind to me, not only intellect, but cultural fit. And and then those people, uh, to the extent they get through that first screen, they will go to our director of research. And our director of research asks off the wall questions, like uh, in 2014, for example, Uh, the question would be, uh, which is the first year ARC uh, uh, was founded, uh, the question would be, okay, we're going into a future of autonomous taxi platforms. Tell me how you'd go about figuring out what that looks like. Boom. And it's not really trying to find the answer right then. It's how does this person think? Is this person a critical thinker? a logical thinker, Uh, and, and, you know, there are a lot of, in the traditional asset management world, uh, there are a lot of what I call inductive thinkers. They they take company information and try and put a picture together. Um, We need both, Uh, we need deductive thinkers uh, as a starting point, Uh, if they can be both fantastic, Uh, but the deductive thinkers are really good at figuring out how to size markets and to figure out where the unit economics are going to be. Uh, So that's the second screen. And then if uh, if the analyst or prospective analyst gets through our director of research, then um, the analyst usually comes to me. And I am looking for, I don't know, have you heard of, you you know, the the book Blink? Uh, Blink is where, Uh, you, there there are a lot of subliminal things that you can pick up in an interview. I think that's my role. And it's also, again, about the cultural fit. Uh, Just, you know, uh, the body language, uh, uh, you know, uh, the the appetite for adventure and that sort of thing. Uh, The ability to withstand criticism, which, of course, we get a lot of that. Uh, So, uh, those are the sorts of questions I'm asking um, because by the time they get to me, they're, we know they're a good cultural fit. We know they have powerful intellect. And, and so there are just a few few more things we have to know about them. That's my role.
1: It's fascinating. And I mean, if you look at your team today, it's obvious that you, you value contrarian thinkers and folks from unconventional backgrounds. And I think you know, we're active managers. We're in the active management business. You have to be different than the index you spoke to earlier. You have to be somewhat unconventional. I'm curious, maybe moving on to markets. Speaking of unconventional bets or you know uh, investment theses, what would you say is your highest conviction bet over the next, let's call three to five years?
0: Well, uh, we have there are two, and and I would have told you this three to five years ago too. Are um, are two. Our two big bets I think at what we've been become known for are uh crypto and uh, starting with Bitcoin, and then Tesla now more and more people are on to Tesla now we are not fighting the the fight uh, that we were in two thousand and nineteen when you know traditional Wall Street was saying they're going to run out of money and go bankrupt they'll never be able to scale manufacturing and here uh Today, in California, the largest auto market in the United States, Tesla's Model Y and Model 3 are the number one and two selling cars, not electric vehicles, cars in the largest uh, state for for, um, auto sales. So the next phase of this, though, is autonomous. And uh, this will take Tesla from gross margins in the 20s, to gross margins in the 60s or higher because it's moving into really a software as a so- service model, transportation as a service. So pretty exciting. But you know we've started publishing our models. Tesla was highly misunderstood. We published it uh, on our model on GitHub, so you can find it there. Uh, and we've published two other models. Again, very high conviction, uh, misunderstood stocks. So Zoom is one and Roku is another. So I think that would round out uh, the top four.
1: Super interesting. You you mentioned, I have to ask, you mentioned Tesla. You all were an early investor in Tesla. Uh, I think you have somewhat of a public Twitter relationship with Elon Musk too, Uh, just having seen some of the back and forth. What are your thoughts, Kathy, Elon Musk?
0: Elon Musk is our renaissance man. He is uh, he's a genius. And uh, uh, we are so blessed. The world is so blessed to have him. Um, and sure, he creates a lot of controversy and out there and stirs things up. But, uh, you know, for Elon, at least, there has been no such thing as bad publicity. It's publicity and it all works. Tesla has not had to spend a dime in advertising uh, so I think uh, I think social media has has really worked for him uh, he's a controversial figure uh, what I love is he says exactly what's on his mind and he's willing to go against uh, the con- conventional wisdom uh, and again in active management that's what we need that's what we need
1: yeah, I, I couldn't agree more and we've talked you know people you know, associate you most often, Kathy, with public markets. Obviously, that's your bread and butter. But you've spoken over the past few quarters, as we've seen markets correct, and you started in public markets. You're starting to see that across private markets. You've spoken a little bit about what you call the arbitrage opportunity between the two markets. Um, you know, many former VC darlings, the Robin Hoods, the Coinbase of the world, have gone public, and they've seen their stocks fall dramatically. In some cases, more than sixty percent um, from all time highs. But private company valuations, we're starting to see some correction, but have largely held up, at least in pockets of the private market. Who's got it wrong, Kathy, public market investors or private investors?
0: Well, I think public market investors have it wrong for the most part because they're looking backwards, uh, as I mentioned before. Uh, I think private uh, equity or venture capital investors have it more right because they're looking out. They're looking to the future and they're looking long term, you know. So our investment time horizon is five years, and we do that for public companies. Most investors are looking at one year. Well, if if you take a look at the difference between linear growth and exponential growth over five years, um, it's night and day. You know, you know, the numbers will be very, very different. Uh, whereas most investors are just looking at this year and the base level, you know if you're comparing uh, an emerging trend to a well established trend um, you're going to you're 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 going to probably be much more comfortable with the established trend because you're not looking far enough to see the explosive growth trajectories uh, so and it is interesting even within the private markets, yes, we're seeing uh, significant corrections in some Uh, in some companies' uh, valuations, but not in the truly differentiated, highly differentiated. Sure, some of a correction, but in the public markets, we have seen 80% declines in companies. It's been shocking. I've never seen anything like it, and it makes no sense. So I think that the valuations in the private markets uh, are uh, more in keeping with what we think is going to happen long-term. Got it. Got it. Uh,
1: moving a little bit thematically, Kathy, to a, a space that, candidly, I'm not too familiar about. We don't have too much experience with the Titan. We do a little bit of healthcare investing here at Titan, but nothing in the gene editing space. And so I'm curious, genomics. You have exposure here in a big way through ARC. How would you explain genomics to a five-year-old?
0: Oh, okay. So a five-year-old. What I would say to a five-year-old is... Uh, pretend that the inside of your body is like a big puzzle, and and no one's been able to put together this puzzle before. There are six billion pieces. You could probably wrap wrap them around the world if you were laying them out straight. That's that's how complicated the inside of our bodies are. Um, what genomics does is figure out. What each of those six billion pieces does. Each has a special role in making our body function. And so genomics figures that out, figures out uh, what each piece means, and is also able to discern when something has gone haywire with one of the pieces of uh, puzzles, like it's not being put in the right way. Uh, And and with the new technologies, we're able to take that one little piece out of 6 billion and put it back in the right place. In other words, cure disease with gene editing. So that's how I would explain it to a five-year-old.
1: Fascinating. Even I understood it. <laughs> five-year-old. each level on the topic.
0: And, um, and you know, I, I didn't mention this in in some of our highest conviction names, because I only mentioned the ones on which we had published. But if you look in uh, our public portfolios, uh, you'll see that in, in our flagship portfolio, roughly a third is in the genomic space because we think it is the most misunderstood. I talk about curing disease, CRISPR therapeutics, very high conviction name, our top gene editing stock, uh, is already curing sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia, you know, where people would have to go into the hospital 17 times a year for blood transfusions. Now they're not going in at all. So that's what we're talking about when we say curing disease.
1: Got it. It's incredible. I mean, and, and it's, a, it's a pleasure to, to get to know you and, and especially the, the the breadth and variety of exposures you have across the space that I not like doing good for the world, obviously, but, uh, and your, your view are, are very high conviction investment opportunities. Um, Kathy, there's one other thing I wanted to touch on related to ARC before we move on to some thoughts I have on macro, which is, I don't think too many people know, but you have a huge following in Japan. This is, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. And so I wanted to get your take. What do you think about ARC appeals to Japanese investors in particular?
0: Well, it's a very interesting market. Uh, so um, the, the average uh, Japanese investor, retail investor, is, is older, um, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. They live a long time there. And, and they are very conservatively positioned in cash and bonds and, and conservative stocks maybe high yield, dividend yielding stocks. Um, That's about 95% of their portfolios. But then for the other 5%, they tend to swing for the fences. And they are very thematic. They love technology, love technology. In fact, most people do. I find it surprising that We believe that the Japanese DNA in terms of investing is very much like ARCs, certainly for that 5%, but their appetite uh, for technology and also the way their educational system has been set up. If we look at um, some of the biggest breakthrough in genomics, uh, Professor Yamanaka at Kyoto University, pluripotent stem cells discovered them. I mean, that's huge breakthrough. Cloud computing, they were some of the first to embrace uh, because they're resource-constrained resource in terms of the energy. They're big into energy efficiency, uh, battery, you know, battery technology. And likewise, because they have uh, an, an older demographic, the population is aging very quickly. They've been the first to embrace uh, uh, robotics in a very profound way. So uh, you know they they're inherently uh, drawn to innovation to solve some of their problems, Uh, and that's why they love what we do.
1: That's fascinating. Uh, I I candidly had I obviously familiar having at Titan we've studied some businesses, uh, some Japanese household businesses uh, such as Nintendo and others. And I'm aware of the conservatism, generally speaking, from a capital allocation standpoint, it's easy, it's interesting to hear you double click on what that means from a consumer's pie and maybe what slice of the pie they want or think they need that art could fill. So it's really fascinating. Uh, uh, maybe jumping to macro, I have to ask, this is probably one of the top Google Trends search topic these days, which is recession. So it feels like every commentator, every investor, whether they're micro or macro investors, is at least thinking. About what this means for the economy, what's your take, Kathy? Does this change your investing style, your pipeline, the sorts of uh, ways you're spending your team's energy and resources, or is this noise?
0: Well, uh, it, it is noise, but our clients want want uh, to to uh, understand how much we we understand about the the backdrop we're facing, and so yes, we believe we're in a recession. Two consecutive negative quarters of real GDP growth uh, is one. Three consecutive months of leading indicator declines is another indicator. Um, Employment, I know everyone's focused on that. Uh, uh, Non-farm payroll employment, very strong, surprisingly strong, but it is always a lagging indicator compared to the household survey of employment so going household by household instead of company by company, because uh, that captures more small businesses, those employment numbers are negative on average over the last four months. So we think we're in a recession, but what does that do to our research? Nothing. What does innovation do? Innovation solves problems. Uh, And starting with COVID, major problems. And the genomic revolution, big part of helping us get over that problem. Uh, to the extent we have, uh, and then uh, on top of that, supply chain issues, and then the, the war in Ukraine, uh, all of those are problems. And now we have a recession on top of that. Innovation solves problems, and so it gains more traction during tough times. Uh, and so what we do is double down on our research and assume that some of our trends are going to uh, be turbocharged here uh, as the global digitalization of work and life generally has been, as the search for vaccine has been. Uh, now with energy and food prices skyrocketing, even more important to move towards a substitution uh, for oil and to use the genomic revolution uh, to create... Uh, uh, you know better yielding crops in less fertile areas than than the Ukraine, so uh, if anything, it increases our confidence in uh, the innovation, the five platforms around which we have um, built our research.
1: it's fascinating. one of the things I 've heard synonymous with with recession obviously is inflation. Yes. One of the interesting things about inflation is a lot of people have been looking for ways to hedge inflation. I think the camp having moved from its transitory to maybe it's a little bit more substantial or prolonged than people expected. At least it seems like the Fed um, has been alluding to that. And so naturally a question a lot of investors are probably asking is, how should I react? How should I reposition? Crypto tends to come up as at least often talked about a potential inflation hedge. You were a crypto bull, Kathy, well before it was popular to do so. And you know you mentioned earlier, particularly bullish on Bitcoin. Do you still have a price target of, I think it was a million dollars per coin by 2030? And how is the backdrop of the macro and inflation influenced that price target, if at all?
0: Yes, I think a lot of people have been surprised at how badly Bitcoin has done in this environment. Uh, but what has happened, especially since we first started doing our research, is, um, a lot more investors have become involved with it, uh, traditional and hedge fund investors. And so in a risk-off environment, which is what inflation and higher interest rates has meant over the last year and a half, in a risk-off environment, uh, Bitcoin, especially this year, has, has succumbed to uh, the, the significant deterioration in most asset classes. I mean, this is the worst bond market, believe it or not, since 1788, more than 200 years ago. We've never been in this bad a bond market, certainly through the first half of the year. The stock market, worst through the first half since 1970. And Bitcoin... Uh, Bitcoin was doing well until last uh, November. It almost hit 70,000. Now it's down to the low 20s. And yes, our confidence uh, has increased, believe it or not, in our price target. One of the reasons is uh, the, the, the um, partnership between BlackRock and, uh, and Coinbase. Uh, We're seeing the traditional investment firms really being pulled by their clients into supporting or providing an infrastructure for institutional investing in the space. And uh, by our estimates alone, if institutional investors put two and a half percent into Bitcoin, that would more than double the price uh, right now. Uh, We think that... um, We think that that's just one use case, though. If you look at emerging markets, which are being terrorized by inflation right now, talk about collapsing purchasing power. Well, while 70,000 to the low 20s is a very big correction, what it does not change is the fact that Bitcoin is mathematically metered to top out at 21 million units. Uh, and if you look at most of the supply, we're at 18 and a half million units, I think, are, are, are out there right now, Bitcoin. Uh, 14 million of those are illiquid. People hold on to Bitcoin. So if we now have this institutional investor base moving more aggressively into Bitcoin, uh, at the margin. Uh, the the supply relative to demand there's a, i think only three million in liquid supply at the margin uh, I think it could drive the price up much more than the doubling I've said just because of that imbalance uh so uh we we our, our confidence has increased in that in that forecast for twenty
1: thirty It's interesting because if uh, uh we we too see the institutional demand only continuing to grow. Um, and if you zoom out, it's, you know, time will tell where we are in the S-curve, but I think folks have a tendency to look at the price action and pull up the chart and say, we've gone through this massive correction. But When you zoom out, when you start to hit this tipping point from retail to institutional adoption, um, we could be much lower on the S-curve. In other words, have much more upside potential than maybe people uh, perceive having seen the recent drawn out. Well, so it's um, it a great
0: Absolutely. Um, I want to kind
1: of jump to some uh, some non investing or personal and prof- professional related questions, Kathy. But before I do, this is like I've always been curious to know: um, what has been your best and worst investments in your career, whether it be at Ark Invest or prior at Capital Group?
0: Best investment is Bitcoin. Uh, I remember when uh, we first did our work on Bitcoin with Art Laffer, my former professor. Uh, I remember saying that it was $250 at the time. And we were doing this white paper. Chris Berniski was our analyst at the time. And when we got to the through the white paper with art, I looked at him and I said, oh my gosh, it can serve the three roles of money. It could. Uh, it's already serving as a store of value, but how big could this be art? And he said, well, how big is the US monetary base? This is the first global monetary system rules-based in history. Uh, it was $4.5 trillion then. This was $250, a $6 billion market cap to 4, $4.5 trillion as the potential TAM. Today, that would be $8.5 trillion. Uh, and I, I went out, I became the guinea pig for it, for ARC. Uh, right before to make sure all the plumbing worked with uh, Gbtc at the time, and put my own personal money and to the point where the analyst was saying, like, oh I feel so responsible. this could go to zero and and uh, and so it's been the best investment. and you know i did, I, I put down a pretty good chunk of change there. Uh, and then of course, uh, Arc followed very quickly at around the same price. Uh, the worst investment. Uh, Probably. I, I felt very responsible at the time. I was at Jenison Associates and I was that adventurous analyst who was willing to go out and look at Mexican stocks and, you know, Chinese stocks. And the, the worst investment, I, we had loaded up on Mexican stocks. I was the ant prime analyst. And, you know, uh, I did not believe that Mexico would devalue. That because the leadership was saying they would never read out, revalue. Well, we didn't take any of the risk off as that risk was building. And that's the worst mistake I've made, I think, in my career. And it it made the difference at Janison between outperforming the big benchmarks that year and underperforming. We underperformed. So I felt very responsible.
1: Hmm. I feel like... If that was your biggest, your worst investment ever, Kathy, I feel like you were a story of redemption. And so I'm curious, what, what was the post mortem like on on that investment? Like, what would you have done differently, knowing the facts you knew at the time, and how did that influence your process going
0: forward? Yes, uh, as an economist by training, as well, I i i should not have assumed that the Mexican government would be able to overpower global investors who were fleeing. And it was just a big mistake on my part. But an important learning lesson, you know, if there are risks building and if there is, if, if if all you can, all you're doing is trusting the word of politicians, well, don't do that. You know, take some risk off the table.
1: Yeah, point taken. Yeah. Kathy, if investing is a sport, I feel like we've, we've been playing one-on-one and been a lot of the on-the-court, so sort to of speak, thus far mm-hmm. in this interview. I wanted to know a little bit more about Kathy off-the-court. So what would you do say is one thing people may be surprised to learn about you? Um,
0: let me see. Uh, I, well, they might be surprised to know. I lived in Ireland at a time uh, when I was a child where we had cement floors and where uh, we didn't have a bath a bathtub or anything like that Um, so very very um, modest there but one of the most wonderful things is uh, at that time they taught school only in gaelic and uh, we knew we were going to go to the United States, so we were going to be there. We had lived in England, and then we were moving to Ireland. And they said, "Well, you don't have to learn Gaelic if you don't want to, because you're going to America." But you know, as a seven-year-old kid, you're going to learn the same language that everyone else is learning. And so I was fluent in Gaelic. We called it Gaelic back then. Now they call it Irish. So maybe people will be surprised. Do I remember anything? I, I remember how to say thank you, gar
1: <laughs> I'm not going to try to repeat that and read that back to you. I, I did not know that about you. that's really interesting What's the best piece of advice you've been given over the years
0: i i the best piece of advice um well, it's a piece of advice that I give everyone as well uh as as they are asking me these days. Um, I remember at Capital Group I was leaving uh to go move to New York uh and become chief economist. And um many people were saying I had only been there three years, I wasn't ready, I was too young because I had started in college. And uh Jim Rothenberg, who was the who became the CEO, no longer with us, unfortunately, he came into me and he said, just know when you walk into that office in New York, you know more about economics than anyone there. No matter how seasoned and, inve- and uh, th- investors they are, and my advice to to people, and and that worked, uh, you know, it gave me all the confidence. And um, my advice is, there is so much changing in the world today, particularly technologically, uh, that young people going into the workforce probably know much more than their bosses or the CEOs know about technology. They're, they're digital natives, right, in, in, in many ways. And so my advice is don't go in there and show them your stuff. Go in there, head down, work really hard to make your bosses look brilliant. In other words, bring them along because they will, if they're good bosses, they will truly appreciate it, but they will also reward you with growth paths um, that you deserve. Uh, But there's a way to do it. Don't walk in, you know, like you know everything. Always have a certain humility because they've been through some trench wars themselves and you want to learn from them. So make it a, a quid pro quo, but the most important thing is think about it in terms of making them look brilliant.
1: I love that. It's sort of like a, you know, I use the analogy of jujitsu a lot, right? Which is, which is take what appears to be your biggest weakness and, and make it your biggest strength, which is, you know, you mentioned earlier, the world's becoming more social. There's more opportunities than ever. Yes. More and more of our younger generations are freelancers. They're on demand, um, you know, workers. And as a result, I feel like at times there can see been a sense of entitlement, where well, I deserve that earlier, I deserve that now. And I think there's nothing to be, there's no substitute for just go old fashioned hard work, put your head down. And sort of like a little bit of the respect your elders, but also like, you know, um, uh, I forget who's the, the famous, I want to say comedian or actor, says, um, be so good they can't ignore you. Yes. It's the best way I would sum up, where you just,
0: and I, <laughs> I think and it was uh,
1: Steve Martin. Who
0: wrote yes. That. So- and that's, that's what we have at ARC. I mean, just an incredible group of people who are so good, so good at what they do uh, uh, that we would never ignore them. You know, you earn the respect and you earn the trust um, and it grows over time.
1: You mentioned something uh, just a minute ago around uh, wartime. I think it was like being a general, something military-esque. And I, the reason I remember that is we have a saying here at Titan we're we're about a 100 plus person uh, investment platform here in the New York City area. We, we every time we interview someone go back to what we described earlier. A core tenet of our process is to ask ourselves, is this person wartime? And what we mean when we say are they wartime is it's really easy to be a peacetime leader, especially in the capital markets when everyone in their neighbor is getting rich. You can throw a dart at a at a dartboard and pick a winning stock. It's only, as Buffett says, when the proverbial tide goes out, do you see who's swimming naked? And it's only during wartime do people show their true stripes and their true colors. Along those lines, Kathy, what's been the most challenging wartime event or situation or challenge of your career? How did you overcome it?
0: Well, I, I will say one of the, the biggest challenges has happened here at ARC. So if during COVID, because innovation solves problems, from our low in COVID, uh, uh, this is the flagship strategy, um, and, and we were pummeled in the beginning of, but from that low point in April or May of 20 to February of 21, we were up 360%. And it was one of those times where we could do no wrong. No, we could do no wrong. And I said to the team, I said, watch out. This is a setup. This is a setup. And so February of 21, we peaked Um, through May of 22. And we think that's the low, although don't want to jinx it. Uh, We ended up in a wartime situation because the traditional asset management world is not happy with us. Uh, We are giving away our research. We are basically saying the benchmarks are going to be underperformers, uh, Uh, during the next five to ten years if these innovation platforms disrupt them the way we think they will. Um, We're out there in the open, uh, in media, social media. And uh, and so I think that a lot of people were happy to see our initial dissent. And then we had these memes going around Uh, oh, this is just a replay of the tech and telecom bust in the early 90s. And so they were drawing our flagship uh, quotes uh, against the NASDAQ back then. And it looked pretty similar. And so there were algorithms out there, just one way street, you know. And so I basically said to our team, I said, "Okay, we're in a war. We're in a war. This is a ground war. This is what we're going to do. We're going to start publishing pieces about benchmarks and how they do not expose investors to disruptive innovation the way we do. We're the new NASDAQ. Uh, We wrote uh, another one. uh, We wrote, uh, we started publishing our models, more of our models, and then doing uh, videos around them. Uh, And we were just out there all the time in the media. I was writing um you know i I was writing pieces as well, tweeting away, so we just took it head on, but we knew we were in a war i mean when when you see a um i'm not going to use names here, but when you see someone on t v uh construct, constructing an ark with little animals in it and then pouring whiskey or whatever uh, and basically saying they're drowning you know, first of all, you know, there's a lot of bearishness in the market when we got to that point. And I think it's not too long thereafter that we, uh, that we bottomed. So uh, a lot of haters out there. Um, wartime is uh, apt, an apt description of what we've been through. Uh, we're still battling it. Uh, and I think when all is said and done, um, that the pendulum towards benchmark style investing, if we're right, and, and if, we, if we win this war, will swing the other direction.
1: I think I think you have sentiment, you have positioning, you have a lot of things on your side, Kathy, not the least of which is what seems like a very wartime team led by a quite wartime general. I mean, I'm reminded <laughs> of the Roosevelt quote: It's not, it's the man, or in this case, the woman in the arena, right? It's, it's, it's that, it's the person, I'm, not, I'm gonna butcher the quote if I tried to read it, but, um, uh, Kudos to what you built and, uh, and the team and the strategy and the intestinal fortitude to deal with what has literally been a historic uh, bear market correction. And um, uh, I think I, I, I go back to, I think, redemption is the thing that comes to mind. Um, so who knows what the markets have in store? Um, I do want to wrap want to wrap up with a segment, Kathy, that I call bullish or bearish. And this is exactly what it sounds like. I'm going to tick through not stocks, but topics, themes, maybe perhaps some people, some celebrities. I'm curious to get your take on uh, if you're bullish or bearish, maybe a quick tidbit on why. So uh, I'd love to start with space travel bullish or bearish?
0: I'm bullish. And of course, Elon Musk is inspiring all of us.
1: How about the possibility of you, Kathy, going to space one day?
0: I would love it. Bullish. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All in a row. How about moving to Florida? You're you're a Tampa resident, I think. Saint Petersburg, St. Petersburg resident.
0: Saint Pete, yeah, Saint Pete. Uh, very bullish. Very bullish. Now, when we started ARC, we knew we had to be in uh, New York, uh, but we're doing something now that Capital Group did in, in the uh, before the Depression. Actually, uh, it moved from New York to L.A. Uh, because it wanted to pull away from conventional wisdom, and uh, and we wanted to move to a place where we could make a difference. Uh, so uh, score or check on both of those, uh, and it's just a joyful place. It's a very optimistic place uh, with innovation uh, all over the place, and uh, I think that I think it could become the next Austin.
1: Uh, I don't disagree, and you can see I have a little bit Florida Miami vibes with our our fake trees in the background. (laughs) With you there in spirit, at least for now. Uh, Bullish or bearish? Wall Street bets.
0: Freedom of speech. Bullish.
1: I love it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Bullish or bearish? Jim Cramer.
0: Bearish, bearish because uh, I think some of what he has done um, has turned people off innovation and I, I think that that's a disservice to investors.
1: I'm not going to just speak ill of anyone, but I will make a mental note of the, uh, the inverse Kramer index or ETF if folks track that. There's, the track record isn't great. So. Uh, at least the market, the you know, the market gods have spoken Kathy in so far as they would uh, seem to agree with that that bullish or bearish take. Um, how about nuclear energy? Bullish or bearish?
0: Very bullish, very bullish, especially the new modular nuclear. I mean, talk about really the safest energy source, especially um given the way the new modular nuclear reactors and Elon Musk knows or uh, also is very bullish. He thinks about uh, these topics quite a bit, of course. That's why he founded his company, Tesla. Uh, so learned from him also on that one.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, also very bullish here at Titan. We, we own a handful of exposure uh, on equities uh, to the uranium space. And uh, as the feedstock nuclear, uh, I think it's super interesting what's happening there. Um, here's an interesting one. I, I'm curious, I'm actually not too familiar if you have any exposure through ARC or maybe part of your personal diet, but impossible meat. Bullish or bearish
0: on, uh, on synthetic? Bearish, meat. bearish, bearish. And I, I don't eat. Uh, I don't eat meat, but um, I, I've taken a look at the ingredients and how processed they are, how much sodium, and I'm thinking, wow, this is a step backwards. And why would a vegetarian want to see the what looks like blood? You know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But
1: oh, sure. uh, I'm with you there. Not a huge fan. Uh, pickleball. This is I know this because I have family in Ohio, but also family in Florida, and the one thing they have in common is they love pickleball. For those who aren't familiar, it's sort of a hybrid tennis, ping pong. Any tennis players will think I'm speaking blasphemy. But pickleball, <laughs> one of the fastest growing sports or recreational activities in the, in the country, I think. How are you thinking
0: about it? Uh, bullish Bullish And it's interesting You said Ohio, Florida Because uh, There is a big Midwest contingent In St. Petersburg Tampa area And uh, I think they brought I don't know who brought Pickleball to whom But I've
1: tried it Ohio, My family's going to Claim stake to
0: that Oh, okay Okay Well, I've tried it And it's fun And it's very social Really a social sport Yeah
1: Big fans We had a Every so often when we'll have the Titan offsite here in New York, we, uh, a few folks will, will bring the Pickleball tents and, and find an empty court. So uh, perhaps next time you're in town, we'll, we'll, we'll get a little game together. Um, just a couple more here, Kathy. Uh, I'm going to throw in a couple very unconventional ones because this is a, quite the unconventional conversation. Pete Davidson and Kim Kardashian getting back together. Are you bullish or bearish?
0: Oh, goodness. I'd have to ask my daughters that they're all into, Uh (laughs) you know, getting back together, reconciliation, reunion. I know nothing about them, but uh, give it a try. Bullish.
1: Fair enough. Optimistic. Uh, Last but not least, TikTok. And maybe I'll maybe I'll generalize even a bit more the Gen Z generation and all things that that encompasses bullish, bearish.
0: Bullish. Now I know people are concerned about the addiction there, but what I found fascinating about uh the evolution of TikTok is, and and the reason Facebook has had so much trouble with uh com- in terms of computing, is it's not about me, 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 uh, really. It's about how can I entertain you? Whereas Instagram is, oh, this is how beautiful my life is and my you know surroundings and party this party that. This is how can I make you happy? How can I entertain you? And I I, I like that better. I personally like that better. Now I have used it. But and a few of our analysts have used it. It, it. They they spent so much time on it. They had to shut it down because they said we cannot spend our time this way. <laughs> you know, we're going to lose a lot of productivity here. Um, and I haven't really done much with it. But I do find it fascinating, uh, you know, the Gen Z's answer to, I guess, the millennials. Right. It's very, very, very different culture.
1: Yeah, I agree. i'm I'm still i'm just trying to keep up at this point (laughs) with with i don't know what the latest and greatest is but uh um look kathy this is that was a great way to wrap up uh it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for
0: joining us oh clay thank you always always have fun with you all and really looking forward to the future in partnership with you
1: likewise kathy wood co-founder i should say founder ceo and cio of market best Uh, my name is clay Gardner co-founder, co-CEO, and CIO of Titan, and that's it.